Interestingly, this psalm is also found in 2 Samuel chapter 22. There's some question, nobody seems to know which was written first, whether the psalm was written first or 2 Samuel 22 was written first. I don't know that it matters. One person suggested that since it's in the Bible twice, it gives it more authority. Uh, how many times that be in the Bible be authoritative? <laughs> so, um, as you, if you read the, the text in 2 Samuel 22, those there appears as almost David's last words before he is going to die. Why did this appear twice? I think as you read the psalm, you also can see not only is this David's experience of God with him, but you can also see this as a messianic psalm. I think it's in the psalms, so we can see its application to our Messiah. We're not going to look at it that way this morning. We're going to look at it from David's viewpoint and his experience with God. Let me repeat verses 1 and 2. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. How many mys are in there? You notice all the mys? There are nine mys in there. David said that he is my rock, my shield, my deliverer. He's not reciting some mental exercise. He's not recording some truth that he knows about God. He's recording his experience with God and what God has done for him and meant to him through his life. As I thought about that, I wrote down his enjoyment of God. I thought how I as a father wish I had taken more time to enjoy my kids when they were growing up. You know, sometimes we as parents get caught up in trying to make sure they turn out right, they make good decisions, and they don't disobey, and we get caught up in just the discipline of parenting rather than to enjoy them. I'm enjoying my grandkids. <laughs> I guess you have to be a parent, become a grandparent, and learn what you should have done as a parent. The other day, my wife said to me, we have great-grandkids. And we do. They're very considerate of us. So I'm enjoying my grandkids. I said I wish I had enjoyed my kids more as they were growing up. But have you ever thought that you can enjoy God? Our walk with him can be an enjoyable experience. It doesn't have to be about all not do this and not do that. It's about enjoying him and what he is to us. David says, I love you. Oh, Lord. That's a very unusual word for the word love. It means to love deeply, to have compassion. John Phillips paraphrases it this way. Fervently, with yearning, with a desire to hug you, do I love you, Lord. So it's a very passionate love that David has for his Lord. He says he is my strength. From the time David was very young, he understood he needed God's strength to be victorious. Unlike the Beatles who sang, when I was young, so much younger than now, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But David, who went to fight Goliath, said, the Lord will give me the victory. You remember, his brothers made fun of him. They mocked him. He said, you're just here to watch the fight. And Saul said, you're just a boy. Go home. 
David said, why are we, the army of the Lord, afraid of, of this Philistine? The Lord will give me the victory. For the Lord was his strength. Paul said in the New Testament, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. So David said, he's my strength. Then he said, he's my rock. The rock is a familiar metaphor, and it speaks of strength, stability, protection. In the wilderness, a rock could provide you shade and protection from the sun. Also is a symbol of stability. Jesus used that illustration in the New Testament. Matthew 7, he said, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and when the winds and rain came, the house was destroyed. But the man who built, the wise man built his house on the rock, and when the winds and the, wind, winds and the rain came, it withstood the storm. So the rock, a rock is a sign of stability and of protection. He says, he's my fortress. A fortress is a fort or a stronghold, a place of safety. So he's saying that God is my place of safety. He sees God as his fortress. He's my deliverer. The word deliverer means to carry to safety or cause to be carried to safety. God had delivered him from Saul. He had delivered him from his enemies in 2 Samuel 8. It lists David's victories over the Philistines, the Moabites, the Armenians of Damascus, and the Edomites. And he also delivered him from his own son, Absalom. Remember, Absalom tried to abduct the throne and forced David to leave Jerusalem for a time. But God gave him victory over his son. He says, he's my God. It is the name El or Elohim. It means strong one or almighty. The same name used in Genesis 1. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was. The same God who in flesh stood up in the boat and said, be still! And the wind and the waves were completely still. Not a ripple in the waves. He's my refuge, or high tower. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. He says, he's my shield. A shield is a means of protection. And then he says, he's my horn of salvation. And that's why I picked this psalm. I subscribe to a magazine called Table Talk. It's published by Ligonier Ministries, which was started by the late R.C. Sproul. And I got one last week, and it had several articles in there. One of Several articles, and the titles of the articles were Phrases of the Bible Which Are Misunderstood. And one of the phrases that they said was misunderstood is the horn of salvation. I read that article, and then I was thumbing through the Psalms, and I read Psalm 18. I'll preach on Psalm 18. Many see, and I have to quote here, the man, the article, who wrote, the man who wrote the article, Clayton Williams says, Many see the image of a horn as picturing the strength and dominance of a powerful animal meant to symbolize the efficacy of God's work through Christ. It can also be seen as an image of exaltation in which lifting the horn depicts the victory of God's grace and the exaltation of his people. 
it's used that way in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, and Psalm 75, 10. Now, this symbolism is correct. It's very biblical. It's not wrong. But it doesn't explain how Jesus himself is the horn of salvation. Turn to Luke chapter 1. You may recall that in Luke 1, Zechariah, who, is, who was an elderly priest and the father of John the baptizer, verse 67, verse, chapter 1 says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Go back a little earlier in the chapter. I think it's verse 11. Yes, verse 11. This is when the angel appeared to Zechariah, and it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, he's standing beside the altar of incense. According to Clayton Williams, the word horn is predominantly used to refer to the altars in the tabernacle and the temple. They are a distinct feature of the altar of incense. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 30, verse 2 and 3. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides, and its horns. Okay, so the horns were a predominant feature of the altar of incense. In verse 10 of that same chapter, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So on the day of atonement, once a year, the atonement sacrifice, its blood was to be placed on the horns of the incense, altar of incense. Also, the sin offering called for the blood and of a bowl to be put on the horns of the altar. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7. Now, as you know, the blood of bulls and goats symbolized atonement. The writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish atonement. But Jesus came and became the horn of salvation. That horn was bloodied once and for all. So in that sense, Jesus became the horn of our salvation. So it, as I think it was Gabriel who appeared to Zechariah, stood beside the altar of incense. Zechariah, being the priest, 
would see the horns of that altar and be remembered and remember the blood which was applied to them on the Day of Atonement. And he said, God has raised up for us a horn of salvation. Jesus became our horn of salvation. So verses 1 and verses 1 and 2, I think, are David praising his God. Verse 3, we have verses 3 through 6, we have David's call. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of seal, Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So David is continuing his testimony of praising God. And it's not like David is facing some minor difficulty. He's not worried about inflation or lack of items being in the grocery store. I went the other day to a, there's a gas station in Marion and they have pretty good pizza. Every once in a while I stop in there and get pizza for lunch. I walked in and they had a big sign on where the kitchen part is. Due to manufacturing shortage, we are out of everything. <laughs> so David wasn't worried about lack of things in the grocery store or the gas station for that matter. He's in real trouble. From a human standpoint, it seems to be no escape. He's no stranger to violence. How long was he on the run from Saul? At least 15 years. He couldn't build the temple because God said he was a man of war. So David is no stranger to violence. As I said, he's facing circumstances that from a human standpoint, there's no hope. When you come to a point in your life when the bottom falls out, you get a report from that blood test, which is exactly the opposite of what you wanted. Who are you going to call? You're going to call the equalizer? I just watched that movie again yesterday. I love that movie. The guy kills everybody, but solves everybody's problem. You're going to call the equalizer? Or maybe you call Saul. There's a program, I've never watched it, but there's a program on TV called Call Saul. Going to call him? It doesn't do any good to call somebody can't help. There's a song written by Pink Floyd. I'm not a Pink Floyd fan, but I listen to the song. And I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> but it starts out this way. Hello? 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 Is there anybody out there? If so, just nod. Is there anybody out there when the bottom falls out of our life? Yes, there is. We have a rock, a shield, a deliverer, a fortress, a safe place to run and hide. Notice David says, the Lord, I cried to the Lord, and he heard my voice. 
God is not indifferent to our circumstances. God does not turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to our cries for help. David says, I cried out and he heard my voice in his temple. In other words, in heaven. He knew that since God was his rock and his deliverer and his shield and his fortress, he knew that that God would be adequate for the job, adequate for the case. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Paul writes in Romans 10, 13, Whoever will call upon the Lord will be saved. So here we have David's testimony of what his God meant to him, what his God was like, and his cry for help. And in verses 6 through 8 through 19, 7 through 19, we have David's deliverance. Then the earth reeled and rocked. Foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds, through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Oh, we see in these verses a very dramatic intervention by God on David's behalf. Spoken in poetic terms. I'm not much of a lover of poetry. Um, I remember at Ohio State, I took a course, a literature course, and we were studying poetry, and we, I can't remember whose poem we read, but the professor asked us to interpret that. And some of the guys in class interpreted it. I thought, how in the world did they get that out of that? <laughs> it made no sense to me, whatever. I may have also told you I took a literature course at Moody and had a professor, a single woman. I made the mistake one time to call her Mrs. You thought I'd drop an atomic bomb or something. But anyway, we each had to take an author. And I took Edgar Allan Poe. And my reporter, Edgar Allan Poe, wasn't very nice. Edgar Allan Poe had to get high on drugs to write his poetry. And so I said, why are we here at Moody exalting some guy who has to use drugs to write? That went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> but anyway, David is expressing God's intervention poetically. But you see that God uses natural phenomena 
There are at least two things I want to look at in these verses. Number one is God's love for his people. God intervened because he loved his servant David. And God loves us as well through Christ. You remember the story how David was, it says in verse 16, he took me. You remember the story how God took David and anointed him as king? God told Samuel to go and to Jesse and anoint the next king because he had rejected Saul. So Jesse brought his sons one by one. And one by one, Samuel said, he's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one. Finally, Sam said, do you have any more? He said, yeah, I got one more. He's out watching the sheep. Well, bring him. And he brought David and said, he's the one. So David says, he took me. And he installed him as king. He drew him out of many waters. drew him out of many times of trouble, of difficulty. God had set his love upon David and made promises to David, and therefore God intervened. So God is not indifferent to his circumstances, nor is he indifferent to our circumstances. Does God always deliver? He may not deliver in the way you might think he will. Does God always prevent his servants from dying. I've read and been told that there are more martyrs for Christ today than there was in the first century of the church. Turn to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds. Does God always deliver? Yes. He may not preserve our lives, but he protects our eternity. So God always delivers us from trouble. What did Jesus say? Fear not the one who kill only this body, but rather fear the one who kill body and soul. Our enemies can only kill our body. And this life is not, God never promised this life to be the ultimate, the end of all things. Eternity is what's ahead for us, for the righteous. So God always delivers in one way or the other. Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. He cares for us in our death. Second thing I think we see in these verses is God's anger. You say, wait a minute. I thought God was love. 
Well, he is one. The earth reeled and rocked the foundations also. The mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. It's exactly because God is love that he is angry. You think God's not angry at abortions? Psalm 135, is it, says that it is God who forms us, shapes us in the womb. God is in the process of forming a baby, and somebody comes along and stops that work. Ends that life. You think he's not angry at death and destruction and evil? That's why he sent his son to die on the cross. Because he's angry at sin. What father wouldn't be angry when he sees somebody trying to violate his daughter? What husband wouldn't be angry if somebody tries to interrupt the, the unique relationship we have as, as husband and wife? What husband wouldn't be angry at that? If he's not, he hasn't really loved his wife. If he's not angry at someone trying to harm his children, he doesn't love his children. So exactly because God is love, he is angry sin and destruction and evil. And it's a good thing that he is. Would you rather that God didn't care about all those things? David talked about calamity. What is your plan? when you come to your day of calamity? What is your plan when you come to face the ultimate calamity, that of death? When they take that lifeless body and lay it in the casket and lower it into the cold, cold ground, will you be able to say, God is my rock? God is my fortress? God is my shield? God is my deliverer. Our lives are not a series of happenstance things. I was thinking about that this week. Probably you've noticed, if you're on social media, or you're watching news, you probably know that at Camp Lejeune, many Marines have gotten sick from the contaminated water. I joined the Marine Corps in 1966. Everybody lived east of the Mississippi was supposed to go to Camp Lejeune. Everybody west of the Mississippi went to San Diego. I do not know why to this day I was sent to San Diego. I left from Columbus. There were three of us, myself and named, a guy named, I uh, can't think of his name right now, but there were three of us out of Columbus. All three of us were shipped to San Diego to do a boot camp. You think God wasn't in that? I don't know why it was. I just I know that at the time there was a pilot strike and the planes weren't flying. So they put us on a train to show you how cheap the Marines were. They didn't give us a, a sleeping car to sleep in. We had to sit in our seat for three days while I went out to San Diego. Boy, that was a miserable trip. <laughs> God had his hand in it, I believe. 
I can't tell you why other Marines were sent there, and I wasn't. I, I just know I believe God was in it. Our lives aren't a bunch of happenstance circumstances. So when you draw your last breath, will you say, God is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my shield? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this psalm and your concern and care for us, your love for us. Thank you that we have someone that we can call upon when in trouble. Help us to be those who know God and not just know about him. Praise saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing the chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus.